So Steve, uh, can I start with a story today? Sure. Uh, okay. So a couple years ago, I was visiting a city, um, though actually technically it's a micropolitan area, in a vast Western state. Um, and I was touring a multifamily property there and talking with the developer about affordability challenges and the lack of available and affordable units in the market out there. So I asked her, like, what's holding you back? Like, you got a growing economy, pretty good influx of people. Uh, why can't you just build some more units out here? And? Uh, land, she said. And as she said that, right, so I turned around, um, you know, we were looking at the property itself. And so I turned around and behind me, you know, under the vast uh, blue sky out there uh, was this giant golden field uh, with a couple of sawhorses in it. Um, and I probably looked pretty confused, uh, but... What it really came down to uh, when we talked about it further was land use. There just wasn't a lot of land zoned for density, uh, which brings us to the topic for today's episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to talk about some of the challenges addressing the shortage of housing around the country from zoning to process to a mismatch of housing stock to housing need. And we're joined by Emily Hamilton, research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Emily specializes in these very topics, so we're pretty fortunate to have her on the show today. So Emily, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. All right, great. Um, so, and we have a lot to cover today on the show on land use, missing middle housing. But before we get into that, uh, how about a little background on your work and uh, and Mercatus? Yeah, um, Mer the Mercatus Center is a research center based at George Mason University that covers all sorts of different economic policy issues. But my work is focused pretty narrowly on housing affordability and how land use regulations affect urban outcomes from um, what urban forms take shape to how housing is ultimately priced in the market. All right. So, you know, maybe uh, maybe we can start with just a lay of the land on the different types of zoning and land use we have out there. Sure. So zoning started emerging in the 1910s and really took off in the 1920s across U.S. localities. And these are the, the rules that determine what type of development can be built where and how much of it can be built. So zoning typically separates land into different permitted uses. So commercial development like offices and retail will be permitted in one location, separated from industrial development, and also separated from residential. And within residential, in most jurisdictions in the U.S., the majority of land is zoned for exclusively detached single-family development, which means that every single house has to be situated on its own yard, separate from the houses around it, um, resulting in the, the typical um, suburban American home. But this can contribute to high costs, and particularly in places where land is expensive because households aren't allowed to share valuable land across um, multiple households. They each have to purchase their own. Uh, and this has really come to light in the past couple of decades as a major driver of housing affordability challenges. 
And um, there have been some important steps toward attempting to reform this situation to allow more housing at lower prices to be built in those places where there's the greatest demand for it. So um, as you say, the zoning goes way back to the 1910s and it's, and, and it's pretty consistently favorable to single family detached. Is it, uh, you know, it, it seems like it's localities that make these determinations though, right? So how is it that they all end up at the same place or similar places? Yeah, that's a great question. In most cases, zoning decisions are determined at the local level, but there's been a lot of, of information sharing across localities through a few different platforms over the years that, that zoning has been implemented. So that um, there were a couple of federal documents that really influenced how localities adopted zoning, um, dating back to the 1920s and then expanded upon during the New Deal that encouraged localities to use single-family zoning as um, what advocates framed as a tool to reduce real estate price fluctuations and to, to prop up real estate values. Then there have also been um, organizations that have attempted to help localities determine how to zone. And in the area of parking regulations in particular, a lot of localities draw how they set their parking requirements from a, one particular source. So we'll see across localities the exact same parking requirements for similar uses in many cases, rather than each locality individually coming up with what they think makes the most sense. That's interesting. And uh and and parking is is uh, is one that you would expect there might be you know movement in that across metros and across time, um, especially recently as you know people maybe the, the car becomes less important as as society changes. Do, um, I I suppose that once things get established, it gets hard to change them though. Is is that what happens? Yeah, absolutely. And the parking requirements that localities often draw from are based on uh, trip generation studies that are of dubious quality to begin with. But there's absolutely reason to think that trip generation due to various uses will vary a lot by locality, by neighborhood, by demographics. And yet localities typically don't take their own unique um, situations into into account when they're determining what their parking requirements can be. And as you say, they, the regulations uh, lag changes in demand for how people want to get around. So they typically um, may outlast their usefulness. So just looking back in time, you know, back to 1910, 1920, did you see zoning emerge in certain parts of the country first and then spread elsewhere? Or was it, you know, in just pocket sort of simultaneously? New York City was the first locality to adopt a full-length zoning ordinance that designated different parts of the city each for their own allowable uses. But before that, localities had already been experimenting in trying to designate certain types of, of uses to certain locations 
in California in particular, there was um, there were early efforts preceding New York's zoning ordinance to restrict Chinese laundromats and other Chinese businesses to areas of the city that would be separate from high, typically higher income residential areas. So there's a, a long history of trying to exclude land uses and to exclude people under land use regulations that predates the zoning by a bit. Um, but once New York City was implementing their zoning ordinance in 1916, other localities were already in the process of writing and adopting theirs. So it, it really um, happened very quickly across many parts of the country. Um, so that that's interesting about how in New York City there were um, – you know, rules kind of setting things apart so that the the Chinese population was 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 separate. Um, that's obviously you know, relevant to today, and it's relevant to you know I think concerns that that are related to fair lending and real estate or redlining. Um, so can you can you expand on that some? Yeah, zoning has often been a tool of exclusion, both by race and by income. In New York City, for example, the one big focus of the zoning ordinance was to discourage typically Jewish garment workers from um, from spending time around fancy retail areas and to, to try to keep them those two uses, the garment factories where the primarily Jewish population worked separate from the the high-end retail districts through zoning. Later on, um, it was African-Americans who suffered most greatly from U.S. housing policy. There were cases of localities attempting to specifically prevent African-Americans from being permitted to purchase housing in areas where they weren't allowed. And during the, the New Deal, the Federal Housing Administration encouraged localities to um, promote deed restrictions that would prevent um, African Americans from purchasing housing in areas that were where those deed restrictions were in place, preventing it, um, really curtailing opportunities for both integration and for wealth building for those households that were excluded from home buying. And the, the effects of that persist today. In some cities, you can still see the areas that were um, what's known as redlined, where federal lending wasn't permitted. And these areas remain um, high poverty parts of their, um, of their cities because of this long lasting policy. Okay. And so, as, as you say, this is still be seen today. Are there are there examples of where areas have um, seen the mistakes of their ways? And uh, can you think of any examples of that? Yeah, there have certainly been efforts to reduce the exclusionary effect of land use regulations in recent years, in part because single family zoning has been a primary tool used to um to exclude by income and has been paired with deed restrictions to exclude residents by race specifically, a lot of the focus has been on reforming single-family zoning. Um, At the local level, we can see 
um, Minneapolis as an example of a locality that's eliminated single family zoning entirely. In 2019, the city council there adopted a plan to replace single family zoning across the whole city with triplex zoning, allowing three units to be built where only one was built previously. And this was really framed as an effort to do better from a justice standpoint in allowing more different types of households to be able to comfortably afford housing in Minneapolis. So have we seen efforts like that, um, not just at the local level, but uh, maybe up one level at the state level? Yes. Yeah. Um, In the same year, 2019, the Oregon legislature passed a law that um, preempts single family zoning across many of the state's municipalities. Um, So for everywhere in Oregon, that's a jurisdiction with at least 10,000 residents or more localities must permit duplex zoning and in some cases fourplex zoning rather than single family exclusively. And I know you guys like to to mention a number, so I'll throw out 4.5. Okay, so uh, so what's 4.5? That's uh, what I would say are the, the number of states that have been influenced by that Oregon law with similar law, similar bills of their own. So in the past legislative session, Washington, Nebraska, Maryland, and Virginia all saw legislators introduce bills that would curtail single-family zoning across their state's municipalities. And I'll throw in California as sort of a a half of an example. California has had a few years-long effort to set limits on local zoning at the state level. And the most recent version of a bill called SB 50 um, included both efforts to allow more housing to be built in transit accessible parts of the state, as well as for allowing fourplexes to be built where single family housing previously was allowed across the state. So that one was was complicated, but I'd say its most recent iteration was influenced by that Oregon law also. And that's uh, that's interesting too because I think um, people often think of the complexities of zoning and things like that as local issues, and it makes it difficult to do things on a bigger scale. So uh, it appears there are things that can be done beyond the local level. That's right. Yeah, there's there's um, a strongly held belief among many local policymakers and homeowners that local control should prevail in land use. But one problem with that is that the the benefits of land use regulations are typically enjoyed by the people who live right next to a regulated property. Whereas the costs of, of land use regulations that drive up the cost of housing and prevent people from living in the location of their choice are very broadly dispersed um, across everyone who has to pay more for housing than they would otherwise um, be able to, um, across firms that suffer because um, their, their employees can't comfortably afford housing in the region where they're located. So there's there's a strong case to be made that that state policymakers should step in to set some limits on the extent to which their localities restrict restrict housing and dictate how housing 
can be built. And this is often kind of framed as as states stepping in to to trample the rights of of lower level decision making. But when states set limits on the extent to which localities can restrict housing, they're actually turning decisions over to property owners. So in a way, it's a more local level of decision making when a property owner has the decision to build either a single family house or a fourplex, for example, on the land that they own. Yeah. So that that's an interesting take on it. And, you know, it seems like there's another aspect of this too, that, that matters, which is the process of uh, those decisions and getting approval. So how, how does that tie into uh, to zoning, either at the local level or at the state level, and uh, getting getting properties built? Yeah, the, the process for permit approval in housing and, and in development generally can be extremely convoluted, particularly in the high-cost jurisdictions that need new development the most. In Washington, D.C., for example, where I live, there was an example of a grocery store and mixed-use residential development that took more than 10 years to get approved because there were so many voices within the neighborhood and city opposing this development, Um, yet the, the city policymakers had also a strong case for wanting to allow Um, what was a very outdated grocery store to be replaced with a nice new one, along with some new housing. Localities are taking some steps to reform in this area, too. For example, Raleigh eliminated funding for an organization, a hyperlocal elected body called its Citizen Advisory Councils recently. Um, And previously, those citizen advisory councils had had to weigh in on a lot of development proposals, whether or not they supported them, and then ultimately the the decision of whether or not to um, permit those projects would be influenced by whether or not the the CAC thought that it was a, a worthwhile project. So these really add time to the permitting process and through that channel they add expense but they also add a lot of risk and uncertainty a developer um, just might not propose a project and spend thousands or in some cases millions of dollars trying to get that approval if they know there's a, a risk of of whether or not it will be approved talking to developers oftentimes they say that these discretionary and unclear approval processes are the biggest barrier to um, to building more housing at lower price points um, rather than the zoning rules on the books. But in some cases, those, those two concepts are linked, what the zoning rules on the books say and the approval process to permit new projects to go forward. To take another DC example, Many of the city's big commercial corridors are so underzoned that almost every new project that gets proposed will be proposed through what's called a planned unit development process, which is a very subjective process um, under which local policymakers and neighborhood groups have a lot of influence 
over determining what is allowed to be built. But because the zoning is so outdated for what um, the market demands in those locations, the, the planned unit development process is the only way to get major projects um, through or has been until um, recently in Washington, D.C. There's been some roadblocks toward those um, planned unit developments going forward on the legal side here. What are things that you'll see localities do to change that? You know, so it's not just a transaction by transaction approval process. So part of it is um, permitting more housing to be built under the zoning rules on the books to reduce the number of projects that go through a subjective approval process. Um, another part is is the Raleigh example of eliminating the standing that certain hyper-local groups have to hold up projects that will have um, outsized effects for a very small area with benefits that will spill over across the whole locality or whole region. Um, this is another area where states have stepped in in some cases to, to adopt what they call shot clock laws that require localities to make an up or down decision on housing projects within a certain amount of time, such as 30 days. Um, and this is um, one case where Houston at the local level has been an innovator in terms of permitting speed. They promise that all relatively simple development applications will um, be given a, a yes or no answer within 30 days. And in some cases, they offer expedited approval process that um, for developers who have relatively simple projects, they can pay to have their permits granted within 24 hours, which is just in a whole nother universe than, than what some um, coastal high cost cities offer. And um, that, that 24 hour permitting isn't feasible if you're giving lots of, of different stakeholders the opportunity to weigh in with what their thoughts are on what development should proceed. So something you had mentioned earlier, mentioned earlier was, um, was you know lower price points, and I think a lot of times when people think of newer housing, um, they think of that being kind of at the top of the market. But certainly, we often talk about um, the missing middle and lower price points. So, how how does all of this feed into creating housing that's more affordable? Yeah, so it's certainly true that all else equal, new construction will be more expensive than older construction. But there are still lots of ways that it's possible to permit lower cost new construction with missing middle, as you mentioned, being a prime example. Missing middle housing refers generally to anything between a detached single family home and a larger um, apartment building that will have an elevator. And so it offers the chance for multiple households to share expensive land costs and spread that cost out across multiple housing units, but at the same time maintains the relatively low cost of stick development like single family homes have. So it's not um, super expensive to build and it spreads out land costs, offering some affordability advantages relative to either detached single family homes or high rise or mid rise apartment buildings that are 
going to be quite a bit more expensive to build on a per square foot basis. Sometimes missing middle um, gets framed as an issue of too much uh, um, larger multi multifamily projects getting built. But when we look at the, the zoning of a lot of localities across the U.S., they will have a teeny tiny portion of their land dedicated to any type of multifamily housing, with the vast majority of residentially zoned land being designated for exclusively single family. So it's really a matter of, um, of reforming that single family area to allow a mix of, of other types of missing middle to be built, um, which is what the, the Minneapolis and Oregon models are doing. I would imagine that as you get more you know, duplex, triplex, and, and uh, quadplex uh, properties built, then you also increase the opportunity for um, individual owners to rent out, you know, to purchase the whole property, live in one unit, rent out others. So it becomes a, a source of income and wealth building as well. Is that, uh, do you see that more as, as some of these more uh, duplexes and triplexes are being built? I'd say it depends. And we're particularly seeing more of that with accessory dwelling units, which is where homeowners are permitted to build either a, a backyard cottage or a basement apartment or convert their garage into a housing unit. And in those cases, it will typically be the, the homeowner living in the main residence and renting out that accessory dwelling unit, or sometimes vice versa. If the homeowner wants to downsize into their own accessory dwelling unit, then they can rent out the, the principal dwelling unit as a, a larger income source. In cases of new construction, missing middle, what I've been seeing most is condos um, where those new units are, are all owned by um, individual owners with typically a um, small HOA fee to cover combined expenses. And I think that's because these are mostly being built in locations with very high price to rent ratios where a, a buyer would have to um, basically lose money each month on um, the, uh, the rent for those other units relative to their mortgages um, and might make out very well in the long term, but buyers may not want to, to take that on in the shorter term. But where we see a lot of that of um, home, home buyers purchasing a duplex or a fourplex to rent out the other units is with properties that are a little older and have filtered down, become lower cost. And in some cases, the, um, the rent from the other side of a, a duplex, or even more so with a fourplex, can cover the uh, entire mortgage cost for the structure, being a very attractive financial opportunity for the buyer. So Emily, you've talked about a, you know a couple of different uh, approaches to zoning. Some some areas that are you know moving towards uh, higher density zoning, replacing some of the single family zoning with higher density, and then um, and you have uh, you know some areas, some suburbs that are taking a different approach, maybe keeping what they have. Um, are there a few examples you know, maybe around a particular metro area where you can see some some stark differences? Yeah, the New York City region is an interesting example of this. 
the New York State suburbs and Connecticut suburbs of New York City are permitting very, very little housing, um, particularly considering the astronomical real estate prices in that region. They are just very much standing in the way of, of new housing being built, not adopting any of these reforms toward permitting missing middle. But they contrast with New Jersey, which relative to other high cost suburban jurisdictions across the country has been permitting of relatively more housing in the New York City suburbs. Since 1960, the share of housing of the New York City region that's in New Jersey has increased from 26% to 31%. So you can see that it's it's taking it's uh, taking on more of the, the region's housing share as it's permitting housing to be built while suburbs in other states are not. So do you see that more in just sort of the close ring Suburbs, because as you you know go down the New Jersey Turnpike, you start to, uh, you know, it's other cities that you're starting to see a lot. You know, as you get farther away from from New York, and not that far away from the city. So, what are you seeing there? Is it more the the suburbs of New York, or is it some of the suburbs of those other cities as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. New Jersey has had some state Supreme Court decisions that have required localities across the state to permit affordable housing, so below market rate housing. And this has resulted in all types of localities across New Jersey permitting some um, below market rate um, entire buildings, or in other cases, permitting below market rate housing as uh, a portion of otherwise new market rate developments. But then additionally, at the local level, um, some of the towns right outside of New York City in Bergen County and Hudson County in particular have taken it upon themselves to maintain missing middle zoning. And there are some really interesting towns, um, particularly I'm interested in Palisades Park, a tiny town in Bergen County that uh, adopted its first zoning ordinance in the 1940s where its principal zoning designation was two family rather than one family. And in spite of this um, this two family zoning, the town was built out primarily as single family detached houses because that's what the demand was for. But over time, as housing costs and land prices in Palisades Park have gotten more expensive, there has been a ton of replacement of those previous single-family homes with um, new two-family homes. Um, it's it's a, just a fascinating place to check out on Google Street View. So, Emily, we talked a lot about uh, exclusionary zoning and and uh, loosening some of that up in, in single-family zoned areas. Um, what about inclusionary zoning and, and affordability set-asides? Yeah, that's that's a policy that's certainly taken off across localities and in some cases at the state level over recent decades. Inclusionary zoning in general is the idea that as a condition of being allowed to build new market rate housing, developers have to um, set aside a portion of the new units as below market rate housing. So if um, if they're going to be allowed to build a 100-unit apartment building, for example, 10 of those units might be required to be 
um, available at prices that are affordable to households earning some percentage of that area's median income. Typically, inclusionary zoning also comes with a density bonus that's designed to offset some or all of the cost of providing those below market rate units. Uh, But I've studied inclusionary zoning in the Baltimore, Washington region. And what I find is that uh, localities that have adopted inclusionary zoning policies have experienced higher prices than they could have expected without those policies. So certainly there are some households that that luck out on getting into those inclusionary units that become available, but uh, the median house price in jurisdictions um, that um, adopt inclusionary zoning has tended to rise more than what they could have expected without of it, without inclusionary zoning. So what I find is that inclusionary zoning is a, a tax on housing construction, uh, which doesn't make sense as a policy that is designed to make housing more affordable. So, the term, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just going to ask, like, how does that work? Because uh, I mean, clearly you're getting more like highly affordable units, or it seems like you would be you would get more highly affordable units than you would otherwise, uh, considering it's so hard to build very low rent uh, and, and affordable units. But so what? How how does it factor into the the median prices? Yeah, that's right. Um, inclusionary zoning programs do result in new below market rate units, although. Um, in some cases, not as many as affordable housing advocates would like to see, but uh, they result in sometimes more expensive housing being built. One thing that developers say about inclusionary zoning is that it leads them to build very high-end new construction that can better cross-subsidize those below-market-rate units. And additionally, with those density bonuses, In some cases, development is going from a low-rise walk-up building to a taller, bigger elevator building in order to take advantage of that density bonus. And it produces um, perhaps a more desirable, better building as a result, but uh, at, at a higher price. So even as inclusionary zoning is providing some below market rate units, It is also, I find, a tax that drives up the median cost of of, um, new development, of of development generally. So are are you finding other ways that are effective in uh, driving the uh, development of highly affordable units? Yeah, what I think makes sense is to subsidize those units directly rather than requiring market rate units Um, to subsidize below market rate units, support those below market rate units with with general fund revenues that are drawn from a broad base tax rather than a specific tax on housing construction. Um, That's um, less popular among local policymakers often because it requires them to make budgetary trade-offs, but it's ultimately a more effective way to support below market rate housing, uh, either on in the direct provision of below market rate housing, and this could take place within a mixed income development, 
or by giving um, low-income tenants housing subsidies that they can use in the location of their choice. I see. And and so that would then allow for the affordability, but uh, not necessarily generate the uh, high amenity, high cost uh, units. So inclusionary zoning uh, really depends on a foundation of exclusionary zoning to work. Because to the extent that density bonuses offset the cost of the below market rate housing, it's because home builders would like to be building much more housing than underlying zoning allows them to build. Um, if localities permit as, as much housing construction at as low of prices as is feasible, those density bonuses have no value. So inclusionary zoning, the term and the concept indicate that it's a remedy to exclusionary zoning, but without exclusionary zoning underlying it, inclusionary zoning is an even clearer tax on new housing construction that is ultimately not a path toward broad-based affordability. Okay, so so then uh, it would seem that solutions that look at uh, removing uh, or increasing density among the land that's around, those can have a, a substantial effect and, and maybe uh, reduce the need to uh, to use inclusionary zoning and, and have set-asides. Yes, exactly. Yeah, making more lower-cost housing easier to build and then subsidizing those households that need it with dollars rather than with this uh, convoluted regulatory program. I guess so much comes out of uh, the environment on the ground at the moment. Emily, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Corey and Steve, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.